resume our study of the words which are to be found in Paul's Epistle to the Romans in chapter 8, verses 28, 29, and 30. And we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. For whom he did foreknow, he also did predestine it to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he did predestinate them he also called, and whom he called them he also justified, and whom he justified them he also glorified. Though we are actually engaged at the moment in the study of the 30th verse, I've read the two preceding verses because, as we've been seeing, it is essential to the argument here that we should remember what the Apostle is setting out to do, and also that we should bear in mind that in this chain or catena of arguments that he provides for us, that it is clearly essential that we should know the other links as well as the particular ones which we are looking at together now. Now, the fundamental purpose of the Apostle is to uh, persuade us and to give us certainty of the fact that all things work together for good to them that love God. That's his fundamental purpose. He's trying to give comfort and consolation uh, to Christian people who are facing uh, troubles and trials and tribulations. He's just been dealing uh, with that. He says that... Uh, we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. He has said that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Well, there were sufferings, there were trials, and that's his fundamental purpose. And his argument is this, that everything, and I mean everything, there's no limit, everything, all things, are so overruled by God as to serve the good of these people who love God, those who are Christians, those who are God's people. That's his argument. In other words, the great doctrine here is the final perseverance of the saints, that their ultimate destiny is sure, certain, guaranteed, and nothing can change it. And the basis of the whole argument is that this is the purpose of God. These people who love God are those who are the called according to his purpose. And then what he's doing is, you remember, he's showing us now how, the, how God has worked out this great purpose of his. And the first thing he, did, he does is to foreknow these people, sets his affection upon them, deals with them in a special manner, foreknowledge. And that in turn leads him then to predestinate a, a certain destiny for them. Having chosen them, he chooses them to a given end. And that is, as he tells us, that they should be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. And it includes also, of course, uh, as we have seen, their ultimate glorification. Well, there we've got foreknowledge and predestination. 
to this end and ultimate destiny. But then the question arises, now how does all this become operative in us? This has been determined with respect to us before the foundation of the world. But clearly, there are many Christian people who for years were unbelievers, not interested in these things at all. Not only that, like everybody else, born in sin, shapen in iniquity, children of wrath even as others. How does this which God has predetermined for us as our destiny, how does it become operative in us? And there we came to this important word of calling. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Now that was the word that we were dealing with last Friday night, this great word called, this effectual call. Our whole object was to show that it is not a general call, because that goes out to all and sundry. People who've uh, never become Christian and who never will become Christian have heard the general call. They've had the offer of salvation, but it means nothing to them. The call means effectual. God, by the Spirit, makes it effectual. It does work. And uh, we saw together what he does. And we were deducing this at the end. That if it were not that God does make the call effectual, nobody would ever believe the gospel at all. For to the natural men, these things are foolishness. He regards them as nothing but utter foolishness. And having a carnal mind, he is at enmity against God. So it's clear that it has to be made effectual. Otherwise, nobody would ever believe it. But it is made effectual. God makes it effectual through the Spirit. There's an enlightenment that comes. The understanding is opened. A new desire is created within. A new principle of life is put within us. And we see everything differently. The result is that we are made willing and anxious to believe the truth. What truth? Well, the truth concerning ourselves. There's nothing the natural man hates more than to be told that he's a sinner and that his nature is twisted and perverted. He hates it. Everything that he believes is against it. He believes in himself. He's a good fellow. All the teaching of psychology and so on encourages him to believe in himself. And the natural man hates a doctrine which tells him that he's a sinner and a vile one at that and that he's so bad that nothing will suffice him but to be born again and to be given a new nature. He hates it. But once the Spirit operates effectually, we not only do not hate it, we agree with it absolutely. We say it's perfectly true. We see that nothing else can suffice us. We are aware that all our righteousness is but as filthy rags. We agree with everything which formerly we hated. We accept the teaching. That as we are, we are hopeless and helpless. Not only under condemnation, but deserving it richly. And that we can do nothing about our own salvation. And then we are more than ready to believe this gospel concerning the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As to who he is, as to what he's done. The meaning of his death, the atonement, the power of his resurrection, we believe it all. Now that's the meaning of the effectual call that the truth of God concerning our salvation and our relationship to him becomes plain to us. And voluntarily and willingly we desire it and we believe it and we begin to rejoice in it. Now that is what is meant by 
being called. That is the effectual call of God through the operation of the Holy Spirit. And it is in that way that what God has purposed and planned for his people becomes operative in us in time. If I may borrow the words of the Apostle Paul himself, the relationship between the foreknowledge and the predestination on the one hand and the calling on the other is precisely what the Apostle says about himself in writing, you remember, to the Galatians. He's uh, showing them that he, he is an apostle. He puts it like this. When it pleased God who separated me from my mother's womb and called me by his grace to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. I'm quoting from the first chapter of the epistle to the Galatians, verses 15 and following. Now there it is in perfection. He says he was separated from his mother's womb. But we know that for years he was the proud, self-righteous Pharisee Saul of Tarsus. Nevertheless, he had been separated from his mother's womb. But as we saw at the end last Friday, he was only called at that point in history on the road to Damascus. There is the perfect blending of these two things. Foreknown, predestinated, before the foundation of the world, but called in time, the thing becomes operative at a particular moment in our history here in the world. Very well. Now then. Moreover, he says, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. Here's the next step. Now, this, as I reminded you last week, is something that is always associated with belief and with faith. The term has become a familiar one, justification by faith only. And justification is always in that way connected with belief and with faith. It is something, in other words, which always happens to those who do believe, to those who exercise faith. Now, there shouldn't be much difficulty about this term. At least, I mean by that there should be no difficulty amongst Christians. Christian people are in difficulty often and troubled and confused about foreknowledge and about the calling. But no Christian should ever be in trouble about justification because what makes us Christian is that we see that this is the only way whereby we can be justified. So I say that justification always happens to those who do believe and who exercise faith. Now there's no need to take too much time with this term because of course we've already spent great time with it. I know that many of you were not here when we did that, but the first four chapters of this great epistle are rarely devoted to that subject of justification, and justification by faith only. The apostle introduces it in the 17th verse of the first chapter. But because the Jews couldn't see it, and because the Gentiles couldn't see it, he has to argue it out in great detail, and with a multiplicity of arguments in those first four chapters. But I can't go over all that again. I just have to assume, therefore, that we are in general clear as to the meaning of this great term, justification. What does it mean? 
Well, here's the essence of the teaching. It is a legal term, a forensic term. It's a term that really belongs to the realm of the law court. And what it means is to declare just and to declare righteous. It's the opposite of condemnation. You move from condemnation to justification. That is why the Apostle starts this great 8th chapter by saying, There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. He's taking up the argument that he'd left off at the end of chapter 5, where he again had been working out some of the consequences of justification. Very well. Now then, here is the essence of the meaning. Now it's something you notice that is done by God. Moreover, whom he did predestine it, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified. It is the act and the action of God himself. In other words, we don't justify ourselves before God. God justifies us. And he does it, and this is the whole argument, of course, of the first four chapters, entirely apart from us and our works. Now, I mean by that that it's not the result of a good life which we live. It's not the result of any merit that is in us. There's one verse that puts this clearly once and forever. It's the fifth verse in the fourth chapter. He says, But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. God justifies the ungodly. Not the righteous, but the ungodly. And again, you remember, he argues the same point out in the fifth chapter. Verse 6, when we were without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It is the action of God, and exclusively the action of God. This is the whole argument of this epistle. Not works, not religiosity, nothing. It is a declaration made by God concerning those who believe in Christ. We are justified in Christ, but by faith and by belief. That is the instrument, the belief. Now then, let me emphasize certain other aspects of this doctrine. Justification, you see, does not merely mean forgiveness. It includes forgiveness, but it's much bigger than forgiveness. And the mistake so often made is that people regard it as nothing but forgiveness. But it goes well beyond that. It means this. That God declares us to be entirely guiltless. He regards us as if we'd never sinned at all. He pronounces us to be just and to be righteous. Now, in doing that, he is answering any declaration that the law may make with respect to us. I mustn't anticipate that because that's coming in the verses that are following. But that is the essence of this, of this word justification. It is the judge upon the bench not merely saying that the prisoner at the bar is forgiven, but that he pronounces it to be a just and a righteous person. 
That's the essential meaning. It goes well beyond forgiveness. Of course, what it includes is this, that in justifying us, God is telling us that he has taken our sins and their guilt and has imputed them, put them to the account of the Lord Jesus Christ, punished them in him, and that having done so, he now puts to our account, imputes to us, the perfect righteousness of his own dear son. The Lord Jesus Christ obeyed the law perfectly. He never broke it in any respect. He gave it a full and a perfect satisfaction. That is his righteousness. And what God does is to put to our account and to put on us the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So that the declaration of justification can be put like this. That God now looks at us, not as we are, but clothed with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. That hymn which we've just been singing, Count Zinzendorf's hymn, translated by John Wesley. Jesus, thy robe of righteousness, my beauty is my glorious dress. Midst flaming worlds in this arrayed, with joy shall I lift up my head. And he goes on, you remember, to defy everybody and everything to bring any charge against us. Because we are clothed and robed with this righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that's the meaning of justification. And you see, the whole time it is the action of God. It is this forensic, legal declaration of God that we are not only forgiven, but we are guiltless. And as we are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, we shall remain there. In other words, we are given a new standing and a new status in the presence of God. We are not just what we were, but that we've been forgiven. No, no. We have this positive robe, this clothing, this covering of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm emphasizing all this for this reason. That it is absolutely a vital and an essential part of the Apostles' argument in these great verses that we are looking at together. And I'm emphasizing it, you see, for this reason. What if it were only forgiveness? Well, then the position would be this. That having repented and having confessed my sins, God would assure me that he has forgiven me. Yes, but I'm still left exactly where I was. The same sort of person. No real change made in the relationship. I may sin at any moment and... Uh, thus become guilty once more and fall out of the relationship and break the relationship. And all my misery and unhappiness would come back upon me again and I'd have to go through the whole process once more. And my whole life would be one of going out of the relationship with God and then getting back into it and back and forth and in and out. Now, the, the apostle's whole object here is to tell us that it isn't it and that this is what we've got to realize. It sounds daring. And the apostle himself was charged with saying things that were dangerous. This is what they said about him. They said, ah, very well then, what shall we say? Chapter 6, verse 1. Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? But it sounds dangerous. 
What sounds dangerous? Well, this. That the whole argument is that as justification puts us into an entirely new relationship, changes my whole status and standing and position, even though I sin, it cannot affect this. Because this is the declaration of God. I am clothed with the righteousness of Christ, and all my sins are covered by this, whatever I may do in the future. Now, this is the most important aspect of this doctrine. That's the whole essence and kernel and nerve of the argument in these verses. That this act of justification, being God's act, is once and for all. And isn't something that can be broken and re-established and broken and re-established, that would be chaos. It isn't that. It is God's act, and it's once and for all. Now, we should be in no difficulty about realizing this and believing it. Because the apostle already has worked it all out for us in chapter 5. I took great time with that chapter because I was preparing the way for all this. You see, that's the importance of laying a foundation. People wondered why I spent so much time with chapter 5. I did so for this reason. I said at the time it was the key to the whole epistle. I repeat that tonight. That's the key to the whole of this epistle. Because he says, therefore, being justified by faith, what happens? Well, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, but it doesn't stop there. Forgiveness might do that, but we go on. By whom also? We have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand the status, the standing, the position. Not only that, we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You see, the apostle has really said it all in chapter 5, hasn't he? He's only repeating it here in chapter 8, putting it in a different way, perhaps slightly, but it's exactly the same thing. It's all there at the beginning of chapter 5, working it out now. Well, now then, but not only that, remember. He works that out in chapter 5 in these terms. Those great verses from 12 to 21 in chapter 5, which means this, that because we are justified, we are in Christ. We belong to him. We are parts of him. We were in Adam. We are now in Christ. This is the thing we've got to lay hold of. The moment you are justified, you are in Christ. Nothing less than that. And here again is something which is indissoluble. Here you're involved in the whole reign of grace. So that he puts it like this in the 21st verse of the 5th chapter. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. There's nothing so tragic, it seems to me, as the way people don't realize the full content of justification. They seem to regard justification as just forgiveness, just some preliminary. It's not. If you're justified, you are in Christ incorporated into him, you're a part of him. And that, of course, as he points out to us, implies and involves the adoption. We are adopted as children. We become children of God, sons of God. And all that follows from that, which we've already been working out together. Now then, here is the point. These things must be dis differentiated and distinguished in thought. But they must never be separated as facts. 
Of course, in order to get a clear conception in our minds, we have to differentiate between the terms. But what's being impressed upon us is this, that the action, as far as God is concerned, is one. Whom he for, did foreknow, he also did predestinate. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he justified. Them he justified, them he also glorified. One great act. We can't rise to it. We are in time and we are slow. We have to take it bit by bit. And while it's perfectly right to draw the distinction mentally, intellectually, it is absolutely fatal to separate these things as facts concerning what God does to us. Very well. What the Apostle wants us to realize is this, that all this clearly is not dependent upon us and what we may do. It is God who does it. And it doesn't vary with what we do. Here are we, fallible, falling into sin, liable to error, misunderstanding circumstances, ready to grumble and complain in tribulations, doesn't matter, says Paul. In spite of you, as it were, God is working his great purpose to pass. You can't see it now. You will see it. Haven't you often turned back in your life and said, no, I didn't understand that thing then. I see it now. I thank God for it. You say with the psalmist, it was good for me that I have been afflicted because before I was afflicted, I went astray. You didn't see it at the time, but God was doing it. Afterwards, you come to understand it. Well, here's the glory of being saved, that though you and I don't understand it, it's still a fact and it goes on. And if it didn't, not a single soul would be saved. Thank God we are not saved by our understanding. If we were, we'd all be lost again. It's in spite of our failure to understand. That is why I said again last Friday that an understanding even of this doctrine is not essential to salvation. We are saved in spite of our failure to understand. Thank God we are. It is God that does it all from beginning to end. And there's nothing to me that proves this doctrine of foreknowledge and election so clearly as the case of Christian people who don't believe in that doctrine. In spite of their muddle-headedness, they've been saved by the grace of God, and one day will come to see it. They're the greatest proofs of the doctrine that they deny. However, I mustn't anticipate myself. Very well, then. I sum it up by putting it like this. It is in Christ that we are justified. It is because God puts us into him, puts his righteousness upon us, puts us into him. And we are indissolubly linked to him, we are in him. We are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. That's the essence of the doctrine of justification. It's inevitable. These things all are bound together. You cannot be justified without God putting you in Christ. You can't be in Christ without being justified. They're all involved together in the same process. Very well. There's justification. Whom he called, them he also justified. And that brings me to the last term. And whom he justified, them he also glorified. Well, again, fortunately, we've dealt with this term also. We've dealt with it more than once. We are to deal with it back there in verses 16 and 17, and particularly from 18 to 23. Glorification. We've already looked at it as we saw that it is God's purpose 
that we should be conformed to the image of his son. That means ultimate glorification. And that is what glorification means. That we shall be like the Lord Jesus Christ. Don't forget this. It includes even the body. It was all there, wasn't it, in verse 23. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. The body is going to be made glorious. Philippians 3.20 again. From whence also we look for and expect the Savior, who shall change this our vile body, or the body of our humiliation, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, the body of his glorification, according to that mighty working whereby he is able even to subdue all things to himself. That's it. That's glorification. It means, in other words, that we shall be delivered finally and completely from every single conceivable effect of sin and evil. There will not be a trace left that's what glorification means. We are not glorified in this life. The body will not be glorified until the resurrection morn. Then it will. Not until then. While we are in this tabernacle, we do more, being burdened. We've already seen that more than once in this great epistle. It is there in this 11th verse of this 8th chapter. No, in the 10th in the verse. If Christ be in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his spirit that dwelleth in you. He's going to do that. It hasn't happened yet, but it is going to happen. So that ultimately, man who originally was made perfect in the image of God he was without any blemish, body, mind, and spirit. He fell. And as the result of the fall, his body, mind, and spirit suffered. Every part of man fell. And before man is completely redeemed and glorified, every part of him has got to be delivered. Already we are delivered in the realm of the spirit and soul. We are already saved. The spirit is life because of righteousness. But the body still needs to be redeemed. And it shall be. That is the ultimate of glorification. We shall be entirely delivered. Body, mind and spirit. There will be no trace or vestige of sin or of evil left in us in any respect whatsoever. Glorified. Very well. Now then, here is the thing to emphasize. Notice the way the apostle puts it. Then he says, he also glorified. You've just been saying, says somebody, that we're not yet glorified. Paul says, he has also glorified. He has done it. Now this is a most important point. You noticed indeed that in each of these statements, the apostle used the past tense whom he did foreknow. Not whom he does, he did. It happened before the foundation of the world. He also did predestine it. It happened. Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. Whom he called, them he also just. It's all happened. All happened in the past. Every time he uses the aorist tense, 
And let us remind ourselves that the aorist tense means this, that it is referring to an act in the past which is already completed. Now, that's the tense the apostle uses. I'm not saying this. It isn't a matter of translation. Everybody's agreed about this. This is the tense that he used, the aorist. It's a past completed thing in every one of these cases. And, of course, it's particularly striking here with respect to this one, the glorification. Because we know that as Christians we are already justified. We've already been called. We know that. We wouldn't be here if we were not. We believe the gospel. Therefore, we must have been called. We have been justified. We rest on nothing but his perfect work and on him himself. We are justified. We know that. But I've just been saying that we are not glorified. And yet the apostle says that God has glorified us. It's happened in the past. How do you explain this? Well, there's only one explanation. The apostle deliberately uses this tense in order to give us this great assurance. He says, in the mind of God it's been done. It's as certain as your justification. You see, there was a time when you and I were unbelievers. Yes, but we'd been called in God's purpose long before that. It actually happened to us in time, separated from my mother's womb, but called on the road to Damascus. Well, it's like that with all of them. So he says, as certainly as these things have happened to you, the glorification is absolutely certain also. Nothing can stop it, because it's God's purpose. Now let me quote some authorities to you. And I'm quoting authorities, which is most interesting to me. Several of them don't even believe this doctrine, but they have to say this. Take Dr. Denny, for instance. Dr. James Denny. The tense, he says, in the last word, that's glorification, is amazing. Listen to Dr. Denny. The tense in the last word is amazing. It is the most daring anticipation of faith that even the New Testament contains. I like that very much. It's absolutely true. It is the most daring anticipation of faith that even the New Testament contains. Of course, in a sense, there's nothing daring at all about it. The apostle had, been, had seen this thing by revelation so clearly, there was, nothing, there was no daring involved. It is an absolute certainty. But looking at it from the human standpoint, it is indeed a most daring asseveration, a most daring affirmation. There's nothing that goes beyond it in the whole range and realm of Scripture. And he says the life is not to be taken out of it, by the philosophical consideration that with God there is neither before or after. You see, the clever philosopher comes in who doesn't believe in revelation and who doesn't like this sort of doctrine. Oh, he says, there's no trouble about that because God is outside time. God is in eternity and everything's the same to God. There's no past, present or future. Then he says, and very rightly, that uh, the life must not be taken out of this aorist by the philosophical consideration that with God there is neither before nor after. You don't get rid of it in that way. The statement goes beyond that. In other words, what we are being told is this, that the glorification is already consummated, though still it is future in the fullest sense as regards our experience. But the thing in God's mind and purposes as complete as every other part of the action. Take Sandy and Hedlum again in their famous commentary. The step implied, they say, is both complete and certain in the divine counsels. 
yet neither of them has the sense or the logic to follow that out and to see the inevitable implication. There's a contradiction in all that they have to say about this. But on sheer grounds of grammar they have to say this, that the step implied is both complete and certain, certain in the divine counsel. Take another, Henry Alford, a great commentator of the last century. He says he did not merely in his foreknowledge a decree uh, to acquit them of sin, but also to clothe them with glory. He did not merely in his pre-mundane decree acquit them of sin, but also clothe them with glory. The aorist being used as the other aorists to imply the completion in the divine counsel of all these which are to us in the state of time so many successive steps. Simultaneously and irrevocably. That's the word. Irrevocably. Now then, let me draw the conclusion therefore. What it means is this. The thing is irrevocable. It is absolutely certain. You cannot go back on it. Nothing can go back on it. Why? Well, because it's the action of God. God has glorified us. And if God has glorified us, how can we ever fall from this? How can ever anything bring us out of that position? In other words, once we are in the purpose of God, the thing is absolutely certain and sure. And this is the way in which the apostle gives us this certainty and this assurance. He says, if you are certain of your calling, you can be absolutely certain of your ultimate glorification. If God has called you, it means he's justified you, and that means he's glorified. Because if you're in any one of these positions, you're in them all. These are joined together indissolubly, irrevocably, as links forged by God himself. The one thing that matters, therefore, from our experimental standpoint is this. Are we in the purpose? Do we know that we've been called? I think I gave you some nine tests of that back in the autumn, end of November, beginning of December. I don't repeat them tonight, but let me give you this one if you haven't any others. Do you accept God's verdict on yourself as one who is a sinner vile, worthy and deserving of nothing but hell? Do you see that if you live to be a million years old and strove with all your might as a monk or a hermit to live a godly life, you'd, as, you'd be as lost at the end of it as you are now, and that you have no hope whatsoever but that the Son of God has died for you and your sins, and that he can give you new life, and that God clothes you with his righteousness. Do you accept that? If you do, you're called. Nobody else accepts that. The natural man, as I say, hates it, he abominates it. He resents it. He regards it as insulting. He pours his vituperation upon it. If you believe and accept what the Bible tells you about yourself and the only way of being reconciled to God and to come to a knowledge of God, I assure you in the name of God and with his authority that you're called. And if you're called, you're justified. And if you're justified, you are glorified. It will happen to you. It's as certain as you're sitting in this chapel at this moment. 
Doesn't matter what happens to you. Doesn't matter what the world, the flesh and the devil and all hell may do to you. It can never make any difference. The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all my transgressions from view. Things future, nor things that are now, nor all things below nor above, can make him his purpose forgo, nor sever my soul from his love. That's what he's saying. Very well. Let me, before we close this evening, just make one further comment. I'm hoping, God willing, next Friday to attempt to deal with some difficulties that some people find with this great teaching of final perseverance. But before we come to that, let me just call your attention to a thing which to me is most fascinating. I wonder whether you've noticed it. And that is the omission of the term sanctification. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified, them he also glorified. Not a word about sanctification. Has that struck you? Has it surprised you? Have you asked the question, why does he leave it out? And especially when you contrast that with what you've got at the end of the first chapter of the first epistle to the Corinthians in chapter 30, where we read, But of him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness, justification, and sanctification and redemption. There it is. Sanctification comes between righteousness and redemption, which stands for glorification. Why did you leave it out here? Well, surely it's a very significant point. What is the explanation? It's this. Sanctification is not a vital step in the argument that the apostle has in his mind at this point. Why not? Because it makes no vital difference to our state and status. Justification does. We were under the wrath of God at one moment, but the moment we are declared to be just, the whole position has changed. Glorification in the same way will affect that most vital change, as I've been indicating, with regard to our body and also with regard to our minds and understanding. But sanctification doesn't do that. It is not an essential and a vital step in the argument with regard to assurance and final perseverance. Indeed, I make bold to say this, that sanctification is not a step at all. It's a process. If it were a step, it would be included here. It isn't a step. Sanctification is a process. That's my first answer. But I've got further answers. Here's the second one. He needn't mention sanctification for this reason, that it's inevitable because of justification. The moment a man is justified, the process of sanctification has started, Chapter 6, verses 1 and 2 has already dealt with that. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead, that died to sin, live any longer therein? And on the rest of the chapter goes to prove that. The moment you're justified, sanctification has already started. It's implicit in justification. So that there's no need to mention it as a separate step. Indeed, as he points out, the very fact that we've got the new nature and the new outlook and that we are dead to sin and risen with Christ and in Christ and alive unto righteousness, all this guarantees sanctification. The man who has been justified 
has already started in the process of sanctification. But not only that. Sanctification is absolutely inevitable from the standpoint of glorification also. What is sanctification? It's nothing but the preparation for the glorification. It's the thing we're waiting for. You see, so it's implicit everywhere. As John puts it, he that hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. A man who believes in the ultimate glorification is a man who's of necessity concerned about sanctification. And he strives to become sanctified. He cleanses himself from all impurity of the flesh and of the mind. He mortifies the members of his body. Any man who believes in glorification must have this great impetus to sanctification. It's implicit. You can't separate these things. And therefore I say in the fourth place, that to make of sanctification a distinct and a separate step is therefore clearly quite wrong and utterly unscriptural. That is why you should never have a separate movement for sanctification or holiness. It's unscriptural. The whole appeal is wrong. You're looking at it from a subjective standpoint and you shouldn't. The way to preach holiness is not to preach about me and my failings and how I can have help here or there. The way to preach holiness is to preach justification, to preach glorification. And you're including sanctification. That's how the apostle does it. Them that are just, they may justify, they may also glorify. It's because people don't know the truth about justification and about glorification that they're defective in their sanctification. And what, what we need to preach is not sanctification, but glorification. And tell them to waste no time to be preparing themselves. How often have you heard sermons on glorification in holiness meetings or in conferences in connection with sanctification? How often? It's a most significant thing. Yet the apostle doesn't mention it here. That's why it is unscriptural to isolate this and to give it a distinct position. It's implicit in justification. Justification leads to it. And it leads to glorification. Both of them, as it were, are including it between. Therefore, there is no need to mention it. And lastly, to say, as a popular teaching has done so often, that you can be justified without being sanctified, and then go on to appeal to people and say, now as you took your justification by faith, so take your sanctification by faith now. Well, there's only one thing to say about it. It is a complete denial of the teaching of the scripture. There's nothing else to be said about it. It is wrong. It is misleading. It is utterly unscriptural. Nowhere are you asked to receive your sanctification by faith. Nowhere. Not a single place in the whole of scripture does that. But here is one of the most powerful arguments of all against that false teaching of sanctification. Not even mentioned here. And not mentioned, I say, because it isn't something that you can isolate. It's involved of necessity in justification. It is involved of necessity in glorification. Very well then, let us be scriptural. Let us not divide and isolate and separate things which are never separated in the scripture. You see, it's exactly the same there in 1 Corinthians 1.30. Christ is made unto me. Wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. You can't divide him. You can't just take out justification from him. No, no. You, if you're in Christ, you're in him. If, you, if Christ's in you, he's in you. 
You can't say that it's only partly in him. You can't divide Christ. And you can't divide sanctification from justification and glorification. Therefore I remind you as I close of the way the apostle puts it. Moreover, whom he did predestinate, them he also called, and whom he called, them he also justified, and whom he justified grandly, them he also glorified. My dear friends, you and I should be governed and controlled in all our thinking and activity by the thought of glorification. If you've got hold of that, these other things will have to look after themselves. It's inevitable. Whosoever hath this hope in him purifieth himself, even as he is pure. May God enable us to lay hold upon these glorious statements of the blessed doctrine. Amen. O Lord our God, as again we thank thee for these things, for this glorious truth for the certainty of the hope, for the assurance of the coming glorification. We pray thee to enable us so to see these things that we shall indeed be gripped and mastered and controlled by them and ever live to the praise of the glory of thy grace. O God, forgive us that we are so slow to learn, so ready to depart from thy word, Oh, keep us to the simplicity that is in Christ Jesus, we humbly beseech thee. And now may the grace of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit abide and continue with us now this night, throughout the remainder of this, our short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage, and until... We shall be fully conformed to the image of thy dear Son, glorified and in the glory. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. All of the sermons contained within the MLJ Trust Audio Library are now available for free download. You may share the sermons or broadcast them. However, because of international copyright, please be advised that we are asking first that these sermons never be offered for sale by a third party. And second, that these sermons will not be edited in any way for length or to use as audio clips. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. That's mljtrust.org.